Just a second. Super excited. Super grateful. Praise the Lord. Make your way to your seats. Try not to trip. Try not to land on anybody. Man. God is moving everywhere. Amen. The Lord is moving. He can move anywhere. He can even move at home. Come on. Come on. I'm waiting for this little dumb notification to go away. Okay. Got to time myself, everybody. Praise the Lord. Chi Alpha, Edinburgh, everyone in this room someday will die. It's true. It is a fact of life. Everyone in this room one day will die. Death is a normal, natural part of life. Death, or even being afraid of dying, has incredible motivating power to it. Death has a way of making you consider all the things in life that really matter. You ever been to a funeral or a funeral of a loved one or a friend or maybe you went with someone to a funeral and it kind of starts to open everyone's eyes. You start to ask yourself the questions that really matter. What is life really about? What, what is the primary reason we are here? You can search on the internet. There are a lot of famous uh, deathbed uh, final statements of famous people that you can read about. And I find it fascinating and also terrifying to read the final statements of some famous people and and many of them are recorded are from famous atheists so uh, uh, Caesar Borgia w said this this is his one of the final statements he said on his deathbed while I lived he says I provided for everything but death now I must die and am unprepared to die David Hume, an atheist philosopher, said that they said that he cried on his deathbed loud over and over, I am in flames, I am in flames. It is said that the desperation he displayed was a horrible scene. Voltaire, the famous anti-Christian, famous atheist, said this on his deathbed, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I'm worth if you will give me six months of life. Sir Thomas Scott, Chancellor of England, said, Until this moment, I thought there was neither a God nor a hell. Now I know and feel there are both, and am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of the Almighty. Joseph Stalin, his daughter, writes in a memoir about her father, that communist dictator of Russia, 
she says about him that his his death on his deathbed was it was a terrible terrible struggle he gasped for air and at one final moment of joseph stalin's life he sat up in his bed he shook his fist in rage at the heavens and then he was no more you see death has a way of reminding you of what the primary thing of life is all about. Has a way of reality sinking in and the things that truly matter come forward to the mind. Death has a way of bringing reality to your front door. But you see, Kaiapha, you do not have to wait till your deathbed to discover what the primary thing is. You don't have to wait till the very end of your life to discover that truth. What is life really about? What's the primary thing? What is the reason we are here? What's the ultimate treasure of the universe? The Bible teaches us of a different path. With God's help, you can experience death before you die. That is the goal of the Christian, to die before you die. That is what the gospel teaches us how to do. And the Apostle Paul is possibly the greatest teacher of this fact, how you can die before you die. And in Philippians chapter 3, a magnificent book in the New Testament, if you are a new Christian or if you're just reading the Bible for the first time, the book of Philippians in the New Testament is probably one of the easiest books to fall in love with. It's, it's an easy book to become your favorite book in the Bible. It is my favorite book in the Bible. Because the Apostle Paul is saying a, a whole lot of state truth statements to the church in Philippi that we can latch onto, and there are so many truth bombs in this book. Now, we're going to read in Philippians chapter 3, and the Apostle Paul is going to teach us how to die. Are you ready, Chi Alpha? Chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 4. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying to the church. Let's back up to verse 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Verse 4. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if, I, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more, he says. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness, though through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. 
I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to experience the power of your resurrection. Help us, Jesus, to see the true you. Teach us through your word, O God. Humble our hearts tonight and help us to receive from you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, and everybody in the house said, Amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul is the man who has been there. He's the guy with all the stories. He's the guy with the experience. He's the one that you want to sit around the campfire and you say, everyone, please shut up. We got to hear from Paul. He's the guy who has all the wisdom. He's the one who has all the stories. He's the one who was there. And yet, Paul, who has experienced all of the magnificent things of life, or supposedly the magnificent things of life, he declares in his letter to the Philippians, as he's sitting in his prison cell, He's writing this letter saying, all of the things I used to live for, guys, I have discovered they are worthless. They are meaningless when compared to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so he's, he goes through a list of things that gives him credibility. So you have to understand in this time, everyone wanted to be like the Pharisee. That is this super celebrity. That's the mega church pastor that everyone just loves. And if you get to shake his hand, you're like, yeah, I'm blessed. Like that's the Pharisee. That's who these guys, that's what they were like. They're the guys that went all the way through school. And if you flunked out of school, that which almost everyone did, that means that you failed to become a Pharisee. So to be, to be an actual Pharisee means you made it. You crossed the finish line. You are what everybody aspired to be. And to make it even better, he's saying, I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And that was gnarly because you got to be able to trace your lineage back to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Like, I'm from this family line. That's a big deal. He's saying, that's my family line. I'm a real Hebrew of Hebrews if there ever was one. I was a Pharisee. I demanded strict obedience to the law. I was so passionate about my occupation, about my job. I even persecuted the church. Famously, the Apostle Paul was the guy who was there when Stephen, that, that famous preacher of the gospel, was martyred, the first martyr of the church recorded in, in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was there to affirm and confirm that Stephen was, in fact, killed. He says, as for righteousness, I obeyed the law to perfection. He did nothing wrong. He, he was a perfect rule follower. He was an idol to the society and to their eyes. He says, he's saying, guys, I did the Bible school thing. I, I got straight A's. I passed all my exams. I was the leader that everyone aspired to be. I was born from a cultural of royalty and I lived my life perfectly. And he says, all of that is trash. What a statement. All of it is trash. Other translations use a much harsher word. Other translations say, I count all of it as dung. It says, I count all of this as refuse. It is, it is just trash. It's crap, for lack of a better word. Okay? Are y'all with me, Chi Alpha? 
Paul is saying, I have been there and back again, and I am here, and I'm telling you all of that. Guys, that's not the primary thing. The education you receive is great, but it's not the primary thing. The job that you get is wonderful, but it's not the primary thing. The great relationships that you experience in life, they are wonderful. You need healthy relationships, but guys, it's not the primary thing. Going to a magnificent church and being poured into and having all this amazing community and being part of a movement and, and storming across campuses and seeing revival and the Holy Spirit pouring out of all these campuses, that's awesome. It's great, but it's not the primary thing. Being bold on campus and street preaching and evangelism, it's awesome. It's wonderful, but it's not the primary thing. Making disciples of all nations, going out and building a small group. You might, you, you might be shocked to hear me say this, guys. This might surprise you. Making disciples of all nations, though that is the vehicle where the gospel moves, making disciples who makes disciples who makes disciples is, is almost everything, but it's not the primary thing. Beneath the surface of all of these things, the Apostle Paul says, I have discovered the primary thing of life. It is to know Christ. It's to know him. Chi Alpha, don't miss this. It's to know him. It's to share in Jesus' sufferings. It's to be baptized in the suffering of Jesus and to walk in faithfulness to him every single day. That is what Paul is saying is the primary thing. Now, how is Paul able to say this? What gives him the credibility to say this? If you rewind in a little bit in the Apostle Paul's life, he's, he's on the road to Damascus, and he is this Pharisee, and by, back, in, back in those days he went by the name Saul, Saul of Tarsus, and he was a fascinating Pharisee, as it was in his own right, and he's on the road to Damascus, and boom, the Holy Spirit hits him in the face and literally knocks him off of his high horse. He hits the ground. The guards, the people that are escorting him and walking with him, they fall over and faint. And Paul looks up and sees in the clouds. He hears the voice of God and he sees and, and he hears this voice. And in the book of Acts, God calls out and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul replies, who are you, Lord? And God says this, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. You see, Paul is knocked off his horse. He gets a real encounter with the one true God. And as you read through the story, he's blinded and he can't see. And he's having to be led all the way into Damascus where he meets another Christian, Ananias, who is freaking out because this is a Pharisee that wants to kill him. And so there's this tension going on in the early church here. And Paul has experienced a radical conversion, a radical transformation that you can read about in Acts. But focus on this, guys. This is is a master of religion who just realizes who his God actually is. You have to understand it's an embarrassing thing to be walking with God your entire life, but still not know who he actually is. You see, my friends, there is a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. 
you can know a whole lot about God, but you still can miss him, Chi Alpha. You can miss God. You see, Paul knew everything about God. He knew everything there was to and how to follow God, how, how to worship God, how to fast, how to do all of the rituals. He knew everything. But in that fateful moment when he was knocked off his horse, he realized that God's name was Jesus. And that Jesus was the one he was persecuting. He was persecuting the church. After the Damascus Road... Paul realized who God really was. You see, before the Damascus Road, he just knew about God. But after the Damascus Road, he knew God. I want to ask you tonight, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him intimately and personally? Because, friends, in our culture today, it is so easy to go through your entire life, to be raised in church. I know what I'm talking about because I was that guy. To know all the scriptures, to know how to fit in into fellowship, to know how to go to small group and just say enough religious things to make yourself not sound stupid. You got, right, you got, I was, we were talking to LTC this morning and I have banned them from saying all church answers. So our LTC class, they're banned from answering questions. What are the five church kid answers? Jesus, the Bible, church, uh, worship, and prayer, right? You just answer those five and you're, you're kind of pretty much answering most questions right, right? But we challenge our LTCers to think deeply about the questions that are asked. The Apostle Paul realized in that moment that God's name is Jesus. And it's a humbling thing to think you know God, but you realize, I just know about him. But, oh, Jesus, how I deeply want to know you. Paul is teaching us how to keep our eyes on the primary thing. To keep our eyes fixated on what truly matters. And in this passage in Philippians chapter 3, he is telling us, guys, I have found the infinite value of the universe. I have gained Christ. And the Apostle Paul, as he moves on from that moment, he loses everything. He loses his career. He loses his status. He loses every single thing that he used to cherish. And he says, I have counted it all as nothing. It is garbage compared to knowing Christ. So there's three passages here that we just read I want to dive into briefly and quickly that, that are magnificent statements that Paul explains to us. The first one of these things he says is, I have discarded, he says. For his sake, Paul says, I have discarded everything else. I have discarded everything else, counted it all as garbage so that I could gain and know Christ. We've already said it. What, what did Paul throw to the side like it was nothing? his fame and fortune, his status as a Pharisee, his job, his occupation, his wealth. You know, in our time today, in our culture, we, we value people who are smart, right? Intelligence is an in interesting thing. If you're really, 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 really smart, it's pretty nuts because you can do, you can do great good for the kingdom of God. If you're brilliant, God can use you to do incredible things. But it's, it's a double-edged sword because if you're also brilliant, you can wreak a lot of havoc on God's kingdom. You can do a lot of damage. In fact, sometimes I think the Lord just would, would rather have someone who is, who's not as intelligent but faithful in their heart. 
you see. Guys, just if those of you that know my story, I, the man that discipled me was an eighth grade dropout. I want to remind you all of that. Everything I learned about walking with God came from a man who was barely educated, yet he was the smartest man I ever met in my entire life. He was the wisest man I met in my entire life. You couldn't ask him a math problem because he would never be able to answer that. But he could tell you how to walk with Jesus, and my life was transformed by an eighth-grade dropout. Your intelligence does not dictate how close you are with God. Your wisdom does. Your faithfulness does. Are you faithful to him in your walk in relationship? Sometimes in our culture today, we get too smart for our own good. Guys, we live, I don't want to go down this rabbit trail too far, but I have to say it. We live in clown world. When you, when you live in a society that believes men can get pregnant, guys, come on. Seriously, Come on. Now, I would love to have it. If you want to have that argument with me, I would love to have that argument. I, I can go down that road. But my, what I want to focus on here, have, as, as Malcolm Muggridge says, in our modern times, we have educated ourselves into imbecility. We have become too smart for our own good that we think we've conquered gender, that we've discovered a magical new Pandora's box of new scientific information, and we throw out bi biology like it means nothing. It's madness. It's utter madness. We get too smart for our own good. And, in mod and, t and now more than ever, we need to be a culture that humbles ourselves and just stays faithful to what Jesus says. Just stay faithful to what Jesus says. You don't have to be a genius to get this. I love how Paul says this to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. He says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as proclaimed to you, the as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. He's saying, I didn't come with super intellectual term terminology and all these isms. I didn't come talking about humanism and, and all of these things. He's saying, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. I laid all my intelligence to the side and I focused on the primary thing that matters. What's that primary thing, Paul says? To know Christ, to know him, to know him, to know him. We need to die to our intelligence, I think, sometimes. Another thing that we need to die to if we're going to get the primary thing is our culture. We need to die to our culture. What do we say in our modern times? I was born this way, right? You hear that all the time. I was born this way, which is another way of saying, you know what? I'm just unwilling to change. That might be difficult for some people to hear, but I, what I'm, guys, I'm not being unloving here. I, I think quite the opposite, that this is loving because this is a truthful thing. God does not think that you, you're stuck the way you are. He never has thought that about you. You're not stuck the way you are. He wants to change your life. You're not doomed to whatever happens in your thoughts. The Bible says you can transform your thoughts. You, he does not want you to stay stuck the way you are. That's not hateful. That's loving. It's his mercy that wants you to grow to be closer into his likeness. Guys, culture can keep you from knowing God. 
We make our culture an idol sometimes. We say, no, this is just the way I am. It's just the way things are. But does it, though, (laughs) does it have to be that way? What we have to do is we have to take the things in our culture, and we have to hold it up to the light to see if it's fake or not. We have to see, is Jesus, does this affirm Jesus' gospel, or does it try to contradict him? And as if it contradicts him, what we do as the church, we cut off the things that do not glorify him. These are things that Paul is saying, I've discarded it. Look, guys, Paul's the greatest example. He completely discarded his culture. He threw it in the trash can. Why? Because he saw a more valuable thing that was more precious than all the culture in all the world. He's saying, I want Jesus culture. I want what it's like to be with Jesus. And so I'm ready to throw it all away. He threw away his heritage. He threw away everything because he said, I have counted it all as garbage in comparison. Now, I'm not saying everything in culture is bad. I'm not saying that. Trust me, there's nothing bad about tacos. There's nothing. It's, they're just, I mean, you can make bad tacos. That's possible. If you ask me to make them, maybe that would happen, right? I mean, you know, no one goes to Taco Bell, right? Like, like that's like a sin, right? I mean, right? Everyone's like doing that like, not me. No. You got to go to Rodeo, right? You got to go to El Pony, right? Yeah. I'm not saying, I'm not saying at all that all culture is bad, guys. Not all culture is bad. But when we have a culture that we say, this is my right, this is my culture, I refuse to give it up, that's the thing that can tear your life apart. Guys, if you've never discarded anything in your life for the sake of knowing Christ, if you've never even had the struggle of doing it, if you've never discarded anything in your life for the sake of knowing Christ, that's probably an indicator that that you just know about him. You don't really know him. You just know about him. But see, what Christ is calling you to is a deeper relationship. It's not just knowing about him. It's knowing him. And the power of his resurrection. The second verse that I want to pull out of here that's magnificent is Paul says, I become righteous. What a bold statement. He says, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. F.W. Borum, one of my favorite authors in, in his book, The Prodigal, tells a story of an atheist doctor named Dr. Blund. And he is, this is in either Australia or New Zealand, that's where he pastored. But, but he tells this story, Dr. Blund is this physician and he has reached the end of his life. He's on his deathbed and he's rejected God for his entire life and now he's on his deathbed and, he, and reality is starting to set in. He starts to look for the primary thing in his life. He's like, what, what is this all about? I'm fixing to lose everything. What is this all for? So he asked for a minister, bring a minister in here to lead me to Christ. I don't know how to accept Christ. I don't know how to get saved. I need a minister. And so they call in a young minister, a young, inexperienced Christian, uh, just has become a pastor not too long ago. He goes in there, and this doctor is very aggressive. Tell me how to be saved. Tell me how to be saved. And the young minister just absolutely botches it. He does a terrible job, and he's trying to articulate the gospel, but he just does it poorly. And 
this man who's frustrated and dying on his deathbed says, doesn't the Bible say something about being born again? Tell me the verse about being born again. And the young minister's like, um, well, um, it, it kind of uh, goes like this. Um, he goes, you don't know the verse about being born again? Wait a minute, are you even born again? And the young minister walks away with his head down in shame. And he's like, Lord, I am so sorry I blew it. And so they call another minister, a more experienced, a wiser man of the faith who has had many deathbed conversion experiences. He goes into that room. He leads this man to Christ, and this man becomes saved. He gives his life to Jesus before he passes away into glory. And so this young minister is sitting down, sitting next to a woman that he would eventually marry. And he's sitting there, and he's, he's just experienced terrible failure. And he's like, man, how did I blow this? Lord, am I really called to the ministry? Am I, is this really something I should be doing? What? And he's rethinking all of this, and he's thinking about this man, and, and he's asking this woman, he's saying, do you think, he's asking her eagerly, do you think that a deathbed repentance atones for a whole life of evil? I mean, this guy was awful. This guy lived a life of debauchery and sin and horrible, ugly lifestyles that he would get into. So he's like, do you think one deathbed repentance atones for this whole life of evil? And this woman answered him, no, deathbed repentance doesn't atone for a whole life of evil, but Calvary does. Calvary can. The cross of Jesus Christ on Calvary, on Calvary's hill, Jesus crucified on that cross, on that hill. That is the thing that has the power to overcome a life of sin. As the hymn writer says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Friends, in our Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat culture, nobody anymore in our culture communicates. Instead, what we do is we anticipate. Nobody in our culture anymore communicates. Instead, we anticipate. When you are sliding into someone's DMs, <laughs> as young folks like to say, I don't say it, but maybe that's what people say. What we do when we are text messaging back and forth and back and forth and we're on social media and you're getting in theological Facebook debates back and forth and back and forth, you're not communicating, you're anticipating. All you're doing is you're just like, I'm going to say the thing and I'm going to think, okay, well, then they're going to say this or then I'm going to say that. And then they're going to say this and then I'm going to say that. And then he's going to say this and I'm going to say that and then that and then this and then that and then this. And, and all of a sudden, you're not communicating. You're just playing a chess game with a person on the internet. When you say something in order to get a response from someone else, follow with me, guys. Don't miss this. When you say something in order to get a certain response from someone else, you know what that's called? Manipulation. Manipulation. When you say something in order to elicit a particular response from someone else, you're manipulating them. You're trying to get them to say what you want them to say. You're not listening. You're not communicating. 
Guys, and we do this exact same thing to whom? We do this to God. We don't communicate with God many times in our modern culture. We try to just anticipate him. We just do the church thing, you see, because we think it's going to gain favor. We do the small group thing. We say the right things. We do the religion thing. We, we do the stuff that's going to just get us by, and we just anticipate God. We don't actually go to God with our whole heart and pour everything out onto the table. You see, guys, the Bible says God cannot be mocked. You can't manipulate God. He says, watch what you, don't go babbling like the pagans do, Jesus says, but because God knows what you're going to ask before you even say it. You can't manipulate God. You can't reduce a real relationship with God into a strange social experiment like we do on Facebook. What Jesus Christ is asking us to do is to have a real relationship with him. Guys, he's asking you to trust him. Jesus is asking you to trust him. That means communicate what's in your heart and trust that he is a good God and he's going to respond the way you need. Can you trust him tonight, Chi Alpha? But guys, if we don't trust Christ, like Paul's challenging us to do, if you, don't, if you can't trust him with Christ's response, if you can't really trust what the Bible says as it says it, if you can't really trust the word of God, then you're just really anticipating and you only know about God. You don't actually know God. You just know about him. Lastly and finally, Paul says this magnificent statement. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. As the famous preacher so wonderfully teaches, have you ever wondered how after Lazarus being raised from the dead, have you ever thought and wondered what it would be like to try to threaten Lazarus after God raised him from the dead? How do you threaten that guy? How do you give him a hard time? How do you point a gun at Lazarus and say, Lazarus, don't you preach that gospel. If you do, I'm going to kill you. And Lazarus chuckles, says, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I don't think you've heard, but something happened to me a while ago. And, there, and, and you could just imagine and see the sight, someone trying to threaten, like, don't you do that, Lazarus, don't you do that. And the more you press, the more you press, the more you threaten, the more you try to scream and shout and be big and bold and say, don't you preach that gospel, the more he kills over in uncontrollable laughter. And Lazarus saying, have you not heard? Death is dead. Death is dead. How do you threaten a man who has been dead already and has seen the face of the man that's going to let him out? How do you threaten the man? You can't. Because why? Lazarus understood the primary thing. He understood the primary person. And when he walked out of that grave, the face of the resurrection was shining. Jesus saying, Lazarus, come out. And right before that, guys, this ought to give you goosebumps. Martha's weeping and suffering and saying, Jesus, if you were just here before, my cousin Lazarus would not have been dead. If you were just here sooner, he would not have died. You could have healed him. She was limiting Jesus's power in her assumptions. 
And Jesus says the most magnificent statement. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Guys, he is the one who's that primary person. He's the primary thing. He's the one when you are dead and gone and you are risen up, that face you're going to see is the beautiful, precious face of Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 3, later on, we didn't read it, but read this later on, and you'll see this, Philippians 3.13. Paul is kind of concluding this, and he says, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Jesus Christ is calling us. Guys, many of us are petrified of our past. We're scared of the things we've done. We're worried about how we have been before. But it is a miscommunication, it's a misnomer to think to run to God, because sometimes we do this. We say, God, save me from my past. Save me from the person I used to be. But guys, God does not, he didn't come and die to save you from your past. He wants to redeem your past. The thing that needs saving, Chi Alpha, is your future. He he's doesn't have to save you from your past. The past is gone. What Christ's blood will do in your life, he'll redeem your past and he'll save you from your future. When Jesus is gathered around communion and the last supper with his disciples, he says that great statement, what, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death in the past, now, until he comes in the future. You proclaim the Lord's death in the past, now, so that you can walk with him in the future. What Jesus does in that one sentence is he fuses all tenses of time into one sentence. He redeems your past. You walk with him now, and he saves you from your future. He prepares your steps. But what do you and I do, Chi Alpha? We must focus on walking with him now. So let me ask this final question tonight as the band returns. How do you keep Christ the primary thing? How do you keep Christ that what Paul is preaching to us tonight out of this scripture, how do we keep him the one main thing, that primary thing? He says to know Christ. I want to know Christ. What we have to do is walk with Jesus now, every day in the moment. Walk with Jesus now. Know Christ now. Not tomorrow. Not after dinner. Not tomorrow morning after breakfast. We walk with Jesus now. Guys, you want to know the secret to secret? That's such a frivolous word sometimes. But how to faithfully walk with Jesus is get your eyes out of the past, get your eyes out of the future, and just look at one foot right after the other and walk with Jesus now. Walk with Christ and just it one step at a time. Jesus, what would you have me do now? Okay, I'll do that. Jesus, what would you have me do now? Okay, I'll do that. And when you practice the presence of God in your life, when you, I'll say this, when you enjoy Christ every day, that's what God's called us to do, to enjoy him forever. 
not just obedience, not just forgiveness, but he also, he wants to enjoy your life. He wants you to enjoy a daily walk with Jesus. You can know Christ now. And to know Jesus is the greatest thing. I was telling my staff team, it's crazy. I've been in the Rio Grande Valley for almost 10 years now. That's crazy. And the Lord has been, I don't even know what he's doing in my heart, but I've been thinking about the next 10 years, the next 10 years. Lord, what's the next 10 years? What, what are you gonna do the next 10 years? I don't know. I have no idea what God's gonna do in Chi Alpha. I don't know what he's gonna do with me. I don't know what he's gonna do in the next 10 years. But the older I get, guys, I've learned to cling tighter to the primary things. Cling to those things. Cling to knowing Jesus and all of the discipleship, all of the fellowship, all of the evangelism, the worship, the prayer life, all of these things that stack on top. What I want us to remember, Chi Alpha, is beneath all of that, all of those things stand on one solitary thing and that's knowing him. That is your primary thing, to know him. 